just told my wife, I know I'm getting old because I need these now. It's rough. Yeah, welcome, right? Thank you. Thank you, Pete. I don't think I wanted to be part of that club, but thank you anyway. If I could uh, ask Isaiah to come and uh, open by reading Psalm 24, the scripture uh, portion that we will consider this evening. So, Isaiah, if you wouldn't mind reading Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24 reads, the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he is founded upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Thank you, Isaiah. And before we go into um, Psalm 24, by way of introduction, I want to give a quick summary of Messianic Psalms. It's something that I shared uh, the last time I spoke on Messianic Psalms when we started with uh, Psalm chapter 2. And just to give a little framework uh, before we dive into it. So, for starters, what is a Messianic Psalm? A Messianic Psalm is one that references Messiah, directly or indirectly. Theologians don't necessarily agree on the total number of Messianic Psalms, but they do agree on the categorizations that are required for a psalm to be messianic in nature. Those categorizations are three, and they are, number one, Christ makes reference to a psalm in connection to himself. We see an example of that in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. The second categorization for a messianic psalm is that a New Testament author makes reference to a psalm and ties it back to to Jesus Christ. We see an example of that in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 and through 27. And then the third categorization is that an Old Testament author's testimony connects a psalm or a passage of the psalm to Messiah to come. And we see an example of that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. So, a Messianic psalm, three categorizations or three criteria to determine whether a psalm is in fact Messianic or not. Once you determine that a psalm is Messianic, then there are two views, uh, two categorizations for a messianic psalm. They are a narrow view and they are a general view. A narrow view is a psalm that is prophetic in nature. And that's the key here, is that it is prophetic. It's speaking of things that are to come. 
There's no direct significance. This is another key categorization or differentiation, if you will, for a messianic psalm. There is no direct correlation to the Old Testament author that is penning that Old Testament psalm, that psalm. So it is prophetic in nature, and there is no correlation or direct connection to the author in that psalm. A general view of a psalm is that the psalm anticipates Messiah, but there is meaning, direct meaning, and direct uh, application, context, to the Old Testament writer. So, two categorizations, a narrow view, it's prophetic, and no connection to the author, and general, it is specific to the writer, there is context, there's personal application, that is the general view. So, we know that a messianic psalm is about Christ. It's about Messiah. But the psalms speak about different subjects of Messiah. And there are about five uh, that are generally accepted. And they are, one, they talk about Christ's nature. Two, talking about Christ's work. Number three, talking about his rejection. Number four, talking about his death and resurrection. Uh, sorry, talking about his suffering and his death. And number five, talking about his resurrection. So the title of tonight's message is, What is your anthem? Again, what is your anthem? Categorically, Psalm 24 is a, it's, obviously it's a messianic psalm, it's written by David, but it's one that has a general view, because as we will see, there is direct context and direct application, and I believe that when David wrote this passage, he was, he was speaking of himself. And we'll see some of that as we go deeper into the study. Um, again, it's not figurative language or prophetic language. For example, an example of prophetic language is, as I mentioned, Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, we see uh, Daniel uh, interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the dream is about a, a, an image, a, a statue of five different materials, and the imagery is the stone that is carved out of a mountain that destroys this, this, uh, this, uh, this statue. And then the stone becomes a mountain and takes over the whole earth. And we know afterward, later on in that chapter, that David, that Daniel, sorry, he interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar and gives the explanation of what that is. And it is a prophecy that we will eventually see fulfilled. And we see that fulfillment in Revelations chapter 19. So, as it pertains to Christ... Psalm 24, the, sub the subject matter, it does focus on his nature, but I think that most of the subject matter here focuses on Messiah's work. And we we'll see that work as a creator, as a sustainer, as a warrior, and as a king. So let's look at Psalm 24 now. We'll dive in. And ten verses, very neatly categorized into three portions. Verses 1 and 2 establishes who has dominion and ownership of the world and all that is therein. Verses 3 through 6 talks about the qualities necessary to ascend into the Most High of this Creator, this Sustainer. And then verses 7 through 10 are an adoration and a worship and worship to that King. So again, three categorizations. We're going to go through each one individually. Uh, but again, verses 1 and 2, the establishment of who has dominion and ownership over the world. Verses 3 through 6, the qualities necessary to ascend and dwell with the Most High. And verses 7 through 10, an anthem or a, uh, the worship to our King. So, 
Reading verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read Psalm 24 again. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Immediately, David identifies, David is penning this psalm, and immediately he identifies the Lord. Speaking of the second person of the Trinity, the one that he is, is explaining was there at creation, was there when all of this was formed, was there at the time of creation of mankind, breathing life into the nostrils of this form that was created with sand. David acknowledges, rightfully so, who is in control, who owns all these things. And, for who, and all these things were created for what purpose? To worship the Creator. For a minute, by, um, by way of application or, or, or just as a picture, I want to talk to you a little bit about, about this planet and the wonders therein. And uh, of late, uh, you all familiar with the seven wonders of the world, um, but of late there are new wonders, new seven wonders that have been created. Sort of a postmodern uh, wonders if you will. Um, some might be familiar to you. I'm going to give you some examples. Some might not. Um, for example, Christ the Redeemer. For any of you who saw, um, for any of you who've been in Brazil, or for any of you who saw any of the coverage over the summer uh, of the Olympics, the Summer Olympics, you, I'm sure, saw imagery, images of this statue over, overseeing on the mountainside, arms stretched out. That is Christ the Redeemer, a statue that is in Brazil. That is considered one of the, the new wonders of the world. Another wonder um, is found in Peru. In ancient ruins, ancient Inca ruins in Peru, Machu Picchu. Um, another wonder, this one is familiar to you, I'm sure, is the Taj Mahal. Another one is the Great Wall of China. And another one is the Roman Colosseum, one that I'm sure we're very familiar with. The interesting thing about all of these wonders I think we can all agree, they are engineering marvels to be sure, created by man. But none of the people that either created them, none of the people that built them, are here to sustain them. They're not here. They're all creations. Yet, we hear creations of God, of living things. None of these things were living. They're materials. They can be destroyed. Kind of like what we're seeing in the Middle East and the, 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 the uh, artifacts that are being destroyed by ISIS in these ancient cities. These wonders could be destroyed just as those are being destroyed today. But the key here is, is that all of these things are residing in probably the greatest wonder of them all. And that is this planet, this earth, us human beings. Um, that are created to worship the Lord, to worship God, to worship the Creator. Um, and more importantly, that this Creator sustains not only all this that we live in, um, but sustains us as well. So again, the Lord having ownership and dominion over all. And the Lord speaking, uh, speaking specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And that's important. That David is establishing this up front in this, in this portion of Scripture. So, moving on to verses 3 through 6. Again, how do you approach the Most High? This is David. The question, how do you approach the Most High? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness 
from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob, Selah. David asked this question several times. Who can ascend? Who may stand? And he answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And I find that answer interesting. I find that answer has a direct correlation to David's life at this moment in time. Uh, and we'll look at, at, we'll take a moment to look at the history, David's history for, for in a bit. Um, but the language in this, in this psalm is, is literal. Contextually, it makes sense to David. And I think to the audience that he was speaking to when he was doing this, because again, this is an anthem, and we'll, and we'll see a little later in Psalm, in Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, um, there are theologians that believe that this psalm was a commemoration of the ark being brought into Jerusalem. And so David wrote this, theologians believe, as, as a commemoration of that, or as a future celebration of commemorating that event. So to the audience that was listening to David as he, as he read this, it was, it was familiar in the language that it was written because they knew who David was as their king. But let's take a moment to think about David and his answer of a clean hands and a pure heart um, and, and look at Psalm 23, the chapter, bef- uh, the chapter before, and, and the, the language in this chapter. One, we see three things. One, that David understands who he is positionally, and he says, and, and we see that he's lying in green pastures and leading beside still waters, meaning that God provides tranquility no matter what the situation in your life. And we know that in the life of David, he had a lot of trials, he had a lot of tribulations. And yes, there were times where he was lying beside still waters and, and, and green pastures as he tended to the flock. But there were also times where he was on the run for his life and things were not, the pastures were not green and the waters were not still. But it didn't matter the situation or the circumstance. In the life of David, he understood that his position, his tranquility came from the Lord and not from the circumstances that surrounded him. The second thing we see is the transformative work of God. And we see that in that David writes, He restores my soul and He guides me down the path of righteousness. The transformative work comes from God, but it comes from God through a willing and able heart. Are you willing and able today to allow that transformative work to occur in your life? And the third thing we see is the various forms of protection. Again, we understand and we know uh, from reading the scriptures the type of life that, that David uh, endured upon being pronounced that he would be the king of Israel and the tribulations and trials before he would ascend onto the throne and even after ascending to the throne. And yet he acknowledges that even though he may walk down Death Valley, he knows who is protecting him and who is in control. Moreover, even having a table before his enemies, again, he understands the, va- the protection and the sovereignty that God has over a life in any and all situations. Um, so let's look for a moment at David's life and, and, and just use this as a backdrop. Again, the imagery and the language used. Um, and so we see in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 11 through 13, that he is anointed king of Israel. Here's a, here's a boy who is anointed above all his other brothers. So he knows early on in his life that he is going to be king of Israel. There is a king on the throne, Saul, but David knows that at some point he will be king of Israel. It doesn't transform David into someone who's haughty. His heart isn't transformed because he is proclaimed to be the future king of Israel. 
On the contrary, he's humble. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 17 later on, um, battle with Goliath. And I find this interesting in that here is David as a shepherd who was entrusted over the flock of his father. And as a shepherd, he protected that flock from lions and from bears. Right? We see two instances in which God delivered David from these attacks and those animals were delivered into David's hands. But then we see how he approaches Saul as the armies of the Lord are encamped. And as a shepherd, as a future shepherd of the nation of Israel, because he will be the king, overseeing the flock, as God had commanded and, and said that he would be the king, he sees another obstacle. This time the obstacle is Goliath in the form of the Philistine. But he identifies that obstacle no differently than when he was a shepherd boy um, and lion and the bear approached to try to destroy the flock. He knew that God would deliver him from the bear and the lion and he also knew at the time when he was coming up and seeing the nations of Israel in camp and the Philistine and Goliath essentially mocking the nation of Israel that God would deliver Goliath into his hands as well. It's amazing. 1 Samuel chapter 18, we see how David escapes unharmed. So after all of the... Unharmed, sorry, let me complete the thought. Unharmed as Saul seeks to pin him to the wall with a spear. So we all know the story. David slays Goliath, all the victories that he has in his life, and then the people chant, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And this caused the Spirit of the Lord to depart from Saul, and he became angry towards David, and though David did nothing wrong and would try to calm Saul as his, at his asking to sit and play the harp beside him, he would still want to destroy David and cast a spear and pin him to the wall. And just think of that and think of the imagery or the language of creating a table before my enemies, as we saw in, in, chapter, two, in uh, verse, chapter 23. Sorry. 1 Samuel 24. Saul takes 3,000 men to hunt David down. 3,000 men to hunt David down. And yet, or though God seemingly delivers Saul into the hand of David, David does not take Saul's life. David refuses to put his hands against God's anointed. He knows again that God is in control and God is, will, will take care of all these circumstances no matter how dire things may seem. And how tempted he must have been to take matters into his own hands. Rather, he cuts a piece of the robe and he shows it to Saul later. Why are you, why are you coming after me? And so, when, when we read about clean hands and a pure heart, think of all of these examples. How crowned or proclaimed as king of Israel early on in his age, yet this didn't, this didn't destroy his heart. It didn't cloud his mind and, and he become haughty and, and his ego got out of control. No, he stayed humble. He knew ultimately he was in control. And think about clean hands that he had the opportunity, not once, but twice, to take Saul, to take matters into his own hands. But he refused, refused to, to dirty his hands and put his hands on God's anointed. So I, fi- I find fascinating Again, in, in, in Psalm 24, that when he talks about how can you climb into the mountains of the Most High, that he uses the language, a clean hand and pure heart, characteristic that David himself embodied at this point in time when he was penning this psalm. 
So David, through his life experiences, knew what it took to approach the mountain of the Most High. Again, clean hearts, clean hands, and not falsehood. Let's now turn to um, verses, the third part, the adoration and worship to our king. Um, And we'll read verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The summary of this section reveals um, David's anthem. And you can essentially, it follows the same pattern of the entire uh, Psalm 24 that's broken up into three parts. But we see here the identification of the King of Glory, um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We see descriptors, strong, mighty in battle, Lord over hosts. You know, again, a warrior. David, the warrior in his own right, acknowledging the warrior in Christ, our Lord and Savior. And also, finally, and most importantly, the desired outcome, to come in desirous that this King of Glory is desirous of a personal and intimate relationship with us. Again, I mentioned um, earlier that, Psalm, that, that theologians believe in, in different commentaries that I read that Psalm chapter 24 uh, was a commemoration of the, of the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem uh, that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, but again, I find it interesting, David talking to the nation of Israel as this ark is coming. And if you read in chapter 26, it's, it, it, sorry, in Samuel chapter 6, it's interesting because when this ark is being brought into Jerusalem, David as king is not dressed in his kingly robes. On the contrary, he's wearing a linen ephod. So the king of Israel humbles himself as the ark of the covenant comes into Jerusalem. And so, so you see this language being written, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, O ye gates, be lifted up. And, and it's David saying this, humbled, acknowledging who is this King of glory. And again, remember where we started. He first acknowledges that the Lord is God. Second person of the Trinity, the creator, the sustainer of all. The characteristics necessary to ascend into the Most High. A pure heart, clean hands. And then the commemoration or the adoration as a result. Again, looking at Psalm 23, that we saw the, the tranquility and the peace, the restoration of his soul, and the, the, the peace and the protection that God has. Basically, the sovereignty over our life, the sovereignty and protection over all of the circumstances that, that occur in our lives, that we know, and David knew, who ultimately was in control. Let's take for a moment and look at the second word, or the descriptor, I should say, of warrior, strong, mighty in battle. Again, David was a man acquainted with battle. Many battles that he was he participant of. In fact, in Samuel chapter two, Second Samuel chapter twenty-three, we see verses dedicated to David's mighty men. So essentially, we know that David is no wimp. He is a warrior. And yet here he is in his linen ephod again, humbled, acknowledging the true warrior, the true Lord of hosts. For a minute, I want to read something to you. 
again, in context of this warrior reference. The Battle of Solferino, referred to in Italy as the Battle of Solferino and San Martino, occurred on June 24, 1959. It resulted in the victory of the Allied French armies under Napoleon III and the Sardinian army under Victor Emmanuel II. Together, these two nations were the Franco-Sardinian alliance, and they fought against the Austrian army under Emperor Frank, Franz Joseph I. Now, Sardinia is an island to the west of uh, Italy, south of France, and east of Spain. Um, the sea in which it, it, it resides feeds into the Mediterranean Sea. It's not in the Mediterranean Sea, but it's there around Italy, France, and Spain. There were about 130,000 Austrian troops and a combined total of 140,000 French and allied Piedmontese troops that fought in this battle. So what's the significance of this battle? It is the last time recorded in, in history where the kings and the rulers of those nations would go out and fight in that battle with their nations, with their, with their troops. We look at today, rulers, they're sitting hunkered down in Air Force One or in some army bunker with a suitcase full of nuclear codes ready to strike war at a moment's notice. But yet, back then, the king was right there with his troops fighting the battles. And, and it's interesting, again, the imagery that David uses because we know that our king, our lord of hosts, the one strong and mighty in battle, he's not going to sit from the throne and fight the battles. No. Let's think about the battles that the Lord Jesus has fought. One, he took on human flesh to come and battle sin on the cross. He descended into Hades and grabbed the gates of hell, resurrected. We see him in, in, in Paul writes, he ascended, but to first ascend, he had to descend. So he descends into hell, grabs death, makes it captive, and wins that battle for us. And we see again in Revelation that, again, a fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, that he will come again. He will lead a host of angels emblazed in white to fight this battle. We see that in Revelation 19. But the difference is that he will lead from the front and his robe will be dripping in blood, crimson red. Our Lord, strong and mighty in battle, will come to once and for all destroy the nations of this world, proclaim and take his rightful place as ruler, as creator, as, as all, and we will worship him. And we will, we will be there to, to, to worship with him. So, again... Looking at the, the language of warrior, and it's interesting that David, as a warrior himself, uh, uses these words. So, what does this all mean to us? What does this all mean to us? Who is the king of glory to you? What is the poem or the praise or the adoration that you would write? We read what David wrote in his heart to worship the Lord through all of his personal experiences. And again, I, I would submit to you that the audience that was listening to David recognized this language and this imagery as specific to David. So what would your anthem be? What words would you choose? And would those words in that anthem 
be recognizable to your loved ones, to your friends, or to those around you. So there are three great examples, and in the interest of time, won't go through all of them, but one was, uh, one was sung tonight. So I thank you, um, Brother Jamel, uh, for it is well with my soul. And think of the imagery of, that, of those words used by Spafford. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. We don't have to go too much into it, but we all know the stories and the story and the circumstances behind the situation that caused Stafford to write that hymn. And to use the word buffet. So anyone who, who knew him and knew of his story knew the great tragedy that occurred in the seas and that he would use that word to, that word to personalize that event, but then use it as a way to create an anthem to worship to his Lord. So again, I ask you, what is your anthem? How would that anthem read? How would you personalize it in a way that it was recognizable to those around you? In 1741, George Frederick Handel um, created a, a, an oratorio with a text that was uh, compiled by Charles Jennings from the King James Bible. Both men collaborated on many works, but this was the most notable work, and the piece was called Messiah. Um, Messiah has three parts. Each part, part one has seven uh, scenes, part two has seven scenes, and part three has four scenes. Some of you may be familiar with, with Messiah, Handel's Messiah, others might not. I could tell you that at the time that, 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 that George Frederick Handel was writing Messiah, he was broke. He was in dire straits. He was considered a failure. But his friend Charles Jennings decided to come to him to compose this piece, and he did so. And there are many memorable pieces in Handel's Messiah. But Psalms verses, chapter, verse 7 through 10 in Psalm 24, are a scene unto its own in Handel's Messiah. And following, there's an even more famous than this scene, and that is the Hallelujah Chorus. This musical composition was over 260 pages long, and it is said that Handel uh, completed it in 24 days straight without sleeping and without eating much. Um, it is reported that upon completing the Hallelujah Chorus, he told his servant, I did think I saw all heaven before me and the great God himself seated on the throne and his company of angels. This piece went on to have immediate success, it then floundered for a little bit, but since it's been received enormously, and I'm sure there were many oratorials written, but this is one that all of us are familiar, is very near and dear to our hearts. So see the significance of it. So to conclude again, I'm going to ask you the two questions. Who is the king of glory to you? Who is this king of glory to you? For David, he was the Lord strong and mighty in battle. And David understood the risks involved in battle. And he was victorious in many battles. But he understood the Lord Jesus Christ was fighting the ultimate battles, the battles for our soul. And we know that he would win that battle. How would you answer who is this king of glory? What is that answer to you? 
Besides knowing where you stand, and I, as I look around, I, I, I have confidence that many of us here are believers. You know, besides knowing our position as, as, as Christians, um, could you say about this King of Glory that if you were walking kind of like the disciples were on the Emmaus Road with a stranger, that the word spoken would burn in your hearts? Is the King of Glory that recognizable to you, that, that few spoken audible words Cause to burn inside of you, understanding just who those words, the, the person voicing those words are. Who is this King of Glory? And the second question is, what is your personal anthem? Really, that's what I want you to come away with today: is what is your personal anthem? What words and imageries would you use to describe this personal anthem? Would that anthem be recognizable to those around you? And, and I will leave you with this. Um, my wife has often encouraged me to write a journal. Um, and as I was going through this study, uh, I can't find of a better way to begin the process of writing an anthem. And she's encouraged me to write, you know, in the evening, random thoughts of the day, um, things that the Lord has put in your heart, conversations with the kids, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But, you know, a way to just pen these thoughts that are coming through your mind. And again, as, as, as the Lord laid on my heart the things of Psalm 24, um, I couldn't think of a better way to conclude is, is, is to have a journal to begin the process of writing that anthem. Who is this King of Glory? And what is your personal anthem? If I can ask our brother Sam to close in a word of prayer.